Welcome to the Words of Belonging podcast series produced by Belong. In this series, we speak with authors and writers and explore their writings in depth, covering themes of diversity and inclusion. Listen into conversations that focus on how gender, sexuality, caste, ability, ethnicity, religion, and other kinds of identity-based bias show up in our myths in Indian language literature, even discussions around modern internet. Understand the role of translations and the importance of debates about contemporary feminist and LGBTQ+ movements and many more such topics. Hope these conversations help you see the world in a new light. Hello and welcome. Today we have with us Maya Sharma. Maya Sharma, feminist and activist, has worked with several grassroots organizations, Loving Women, Being Lesbian in Under Unprivileged India. The book we are talking to her about today is located within the personal journey of emergence from a space fraught with silences and half truths. The book documents the life stories of 10 working class queer women living in North India. In doing so, it dispels the myth that lesbians in India are all urban, westernized and come from upper and middle classes. Thank you so much for talking to us, Naya ma'am. And Thank you. I welcome you to this platform. I would like to start this conversation with a broader question about the term lesbian because in the introduction you talk about your choice to include this label in the title of the book. Can you elaborate why it was an important choice to identify with this label and what's the politics behind this term? It was difficult actually to use the word lesbian both because of the fact that it is so socially stigmatized and it was even more so earlier but also i wanted to politicize the identity because of the stigma the shame and silence around it so i felt it is a valid political subject and perhaps to pol- politicize the identity it was important to use the word and ironically in the stories you will see that some of them called their relationship female friendship and i still continue to use the word lesbian because i felt writing in it was the only way to overcome the silence and the stigma and perhaps female friendship i hope would be as ambiguous as a relationship is so between silences and between coming out the stories would narrate their own tale of social policing the moral dilemmas that people who loved women actually live through in daily lives so for me it was important also because lesbian then was a word that was really loaded with fear and embarrassment and it was something very hidden and to bring it mm. out openly and to conceive of human rights and entitlements mm. it was very critical to use the word lesbian and to ensure that there is a wide range of people other than the urban middle class people because the myth is that and continues actually even now that lesbianism is something that is from the west and mm. that it is mostly in the urban areas so it was important to really to bring this reality to surface that love is irrespective of who you love love is everywhere and women who love women are present everywhere as present as any other form of love 
so that is why I felt the use of lesbian was very important. Absolutely. And I agree. I think a lot of, even historically, every homosexual relationship has been relegated to friendship and has been invisibilized under the guise of friendship. Although, of course, my next question is also from like this whole debate about identity and labels, because this quote really stood out to me from one of the stories from Wimlish, who rejects the label lesbian. And they say that I'm attracted to women. Why create these categories, such deep differences between male and female? We are all human beings, aren't we? And I was just thinking about this kind of point also makes sense. Why do we have to? Because in straight relationships or identities, they are not, we don't have to reclaim those, like they don't have to reclaim those kind of labels. So why can't our relationships also be part of everyday vocabulary? But as you pointed out, using especially lesbian as, a, as an identity also lends power and solidarity and reclamation to one's marginalized position. So how does one balance both these points? Hmm. Interesting question. But I think it is also, if you read beneath the surface of what Bimlesh is saying, it's a longing, a longing for an Absolutely. idyllic world where we would all be equal and equal mm. with our diversities. And I think if you really, and it is precisely because to be equal, that one needs this identifier, even though mm. they may be very restrictive because yeah. our class, caste, religion, everything continuously changes those dynamics of identity. So I think balancing is as negotiable as our identities are in a constant flux. And I think in that sense, Vimlesh is really envisioning an idyllic world where we would all be equal with these various dynamics of power that constantly shift. And also, I think really at the end of the day, we're all human beings in that sense, recognizing that that is why we also talk of human rights as universal and indivisible. So yeah. I think, yeah, balancing becomes different, but at the same time, recognizing those small pockets of power which constantly change. And perhaps those pockets of power really enable our negotiations and help us to keep a balance and kind of attain our selfhood or what we want. I also believe that the thought behind is kind of yearning and kind of in an idyllic world, we would not have to make our personal so political, but it's not an idyllic world. So yeah. for sure, I think that using the term is really important. And mm. that also made me think about the recent, the American debate that's going on with not using mm -hmm. gay as a term for children, mm -hmm. for like, like classrooms and how you also touch upon the difference between private and public. And mm -hmm. I was very curious to know that also comes up when you talk about women's movement and how they were not really allies for lesbian rights movement. Can you tell us more about why the discussion about sexual preference is always shied? Like it's something that is supposed to be taboo, it's supposed to be in the private sphere and it should not be discussed in public. Mm -hmm. But I also wanted to come to the previous point, just to reinforce it, that because now we live in a, a state of affairs where we have a political system that governs us all. And the state almost makes it binding upon us to have an identity. Mm. How else otherwise would I approach 
the state for my rights without getting that identity. So I think the state and the industrial society, which sort of creates these divisions, one needs fires or identities in order to get your entitlements. I think so, recognizing the kind of society that we live in, which is kind of formal and informal, you need identities. So to come back to what, ah, oh yes, about the women's movement, very complicated relationship, <laughs> very trouble, but also yeah. one that really, personally, it really gave me a lot of space to come to understand mm. myself as a woman. And like several other women, the women's movement has really nurtured us all. But I think we also come from that whole protest movement, violence against women. And so that kind of gave us an understanding that, well, violence is against my right. But I think it didn't really go to the extent of recognizing women as a body that is autonomous, that has sexual desires, not necessarily tied to this heterosexual paradigm of oppositional duality. And I think this kind of understanding really prevented, hindered us from thinking of addressing sexuality in a very radical kind of a way because women were all, even now actually, they are seen as subservient as, as merely complementary to men. So the idea of desires really was confined to reproduction for women as well as perhaps of the labor that they provided within the society and the larger and the domestic sphere. So the concept of sexuality, of women being really independent or having sexual desires was completely outrageous and continues to be so even now. And really, if you think of women as autonomous sexual beings, then it really upsets the entire order of the way we envision the world or where the world moves. For example, lesbians and even sex workers, for example, create this discordant note in this regime of heterosexuality. So I think perhaps that is what kept the women's movement away. And the fact that, you know, this idea of that it will divide women from women also prevented from looking at sexuality in a, from a lens, not from a victimhood, but from something that is, comes from your own self and with, with a certain amount of agency. But now I think there is there has been a lot of shift in recognition. For example, even in Section 377, for example, when it talks of queer relationships, it does recognize sexuality as well as consent, which is important in conceiving of sexuality. So perhaps things are changing slowly, but there has been a shift, even though very often, even in the international arena and even within the movement, we continue to add reproductive rights because of various oppositions from different conservative forces. Often when you talk of sexual rights, that sexual rights are clubbed with reproduction. Yeah. You know? And I mean, sexual rights can stand and be by themselves. Why do you have to club it with reproductive rights? I mean, that tab continues, but within that tab, there is a rethinking going on. And I think also because we are still very much overruled by conservative forces, by religious thinking. So while we are making the changes, that word reproductive continues. And perhaps it is used as a more as something to beneath that usage of word, a lot more is going on. Absolutely. 
Uh, yeah, that for sure stood out to me as well in your introduction. And also a really good point that I had not thought about, about how just focusing on patriarchy or just focusing on all the women's rights conversations against men is also kind of focusing, like having men at the center is also not really progressing and we should rethink those dynamics as well. And I think that also stands true for reproductive rights being one of the main, like not thinking of reproductive rights away from sexual rights. Yeah. Yeah, the whole emphasis even of the government's welfare, if you want to overcome nutrition, the malnutrition or the sex ratio or women in a certain age group, the government continues to focus their attention on women's reproductive years. Yeah. And because of all these things, this kind of an understanding prevents the full-blown majority of sexual rights to really come forth. And I wish they would, because lesbian issues really raise this debate, really, because it has less to do with reproduction and more to do with pleasure and choices and consent. Absolutely. Yeah, I think it's because not seeing women as people themselves, it's again the question, the restricting of autonomy and just seeing them as more than baby makers. And thank you for all the work that you and everyone else has done for making the changes that have, you were talking about how things have changed and for sure we are moving towards hopefully more progress. Sometimes secretly, sometimes openly. Yes. <laughs> yeah. But for sure, I think, at least around me, because I'm also a young queer woman, at least around me, the conversations I think I had not seen growing up, I see a lot of younger people doing having those conversations. It mm-hmm. is for sure a progress that I hope see a lot of changes in the future. Another fact that really stood out to me about your collection was how sensitively you have portrayed all these narratives, all these stories. And usually when I think of whenever there's a depiction of especially rural women or rural queer women, it's usually through the lens of victimization. It's about violence. It's about reports of their families or it's usually reports of violence. But you also show like the everyday joy and all the like nuances of those stories. Can you mm-hmm. tell us your experience as a researcher, especially for this collection? Um, <laughs> actually, I really enjoyed it because I was so passionate since I identify as a lesbian. And during our time, the word I shared earlier was like very shameful being a lesbian <laughs> and wanting women. So for me, it was a passion and as well as a personal discovery. So it was a really very explorative journey, but also very rewarding one because of all the women that I met. And some of the women finally decided not to tell their stories. I mean, not to print their stories, but Mm. it was a fantastic time because we bonded. And some of the stories, it's been a dilemma for me, how much to write in of the confidences that we shared earlier. So I had to really tight tight rope walk it was for me to sort of to tell or not to tell and what to tell and how to tell because also one felt that you had to write in because 
I mean, a lot of us were being told they don't exist. We don't exist. And so also the other thing I found that the religion, which sort of when you are asexual or when you're seen to be asexual, you belong to a higher order of the world. And when I actually looked for these stories, I found them in religious texts. And one of the stories that I read was called Narayan Chitravali. And this person was called Mahaprabhu. And till the time she or he joins the ashram, the story is completely, I would say, of a person who does not identify himself or herself in the female body and has masculine behavior. And so actually to, to really even now to locate women in the rural India perhaps is to look at kind of places in the informal traditions as well as the formal mm. traditions, in the religious traditions. So this woman was in a very religious ashram, in a very Hinduized ashram. Yeah. And the other woman that I met was belonged to the Ramsni tradition, mm. which is an informal tradition because religion does not allow the Dalit women and men to enter the temples. And so this Ramsni tradition allowed women a space. And I realized that women found each other in these traditions as well. So I wouldn't label them in terms of whatever kind of relationship, but my sense of their gender identity, their everyday lives, perhaps one can call them queer, if nothing else, because they do not fit into the normative box that we usually see. And another mm -hmm. time that I came across was about the women who played the role of Radha and Krishna. And it was an interesting relationship. And I think it's very useful to look at desire in the way that it is played out in everyday life, mm -hmm. something intimate and yet very ambiguous and not really having a name to it. And though, ironically, I use the word lesbian, I also wanted the stories to reflect that certain desires resist names. And I hope I was successful in that. For me, this journey was very interesting that, like as Vimlesh says, why have these categories? People were actually living their lives resisting names and categories. And that for me was an eye opener. And there are references, for example, in a book called Sita's Daughters, I found a narrative of a woman who's allowed to sit and have hookah with men. And since marriage is so compulsory, when she was married to a man, she said that she would only help him raise his children and then return. And so she did oh. return. And the way her clothing has been described as a very loose kind of a top over a female dress. But having hookah with men in villages is really, even now, perhaps it would be restricted. So I think cheers to these very courageous women who we hear of them and know of them in ways that don't have labels, but we can still connect to them. Women that I met through books, but there were all these other women, like, for example, a couple who was called Mia Bibi. Very openly, it was an open secret. And yet, I mean, this kind of a category gave them, and yet at the same time, they were also called as female friends, migrant labor who choose to come into the city to live a life of their own. Mm. And they worked as home guards. And their space of privacy was in the workplace at night when they could 
rest and do their duties together. So there were some really interesting women who withdrew finally from telling the whole story. But also what is interesting is really about how people, how our folk stories travel into everyday lives and the everyday lives go back into tales. For example, the woman that I met, Hasina, she mm. talks of a friend who comes out of a well dressed as a female for her. Yeah. And it's interesting, the well is dry. It is in the middle of a very public place. And mm. this is how she narrates her love for him and how she really loves her. And what is interesting is the transformative medium, water, for example. And in many other stories that I've read now, in folk stories and religious books, water is a medium of gender transformation. So it's, I think it is like going to people that you get to learn. And from learning back what you learn from people, you produce books and then it's a kind of a continuous process of going back and forth, but to be amongst people, to know them and to understand, I think it's a great joy. And in that sense, actually, I don't think my research is research in the academic sense. So I really don't want to think of it as a research, but rather a book of stories of yeah. people, <laughs> just about people, myself and their lives and the simple everyday lives, how one negotiates the barriers that society puts and how we tell our stories in ways that are symbolic and leaves us with the meaning that we want to pick up on. Yeah. I think that's a great way to describe it. And the fact about water is so interesting. I'll also go and read more about it. It sounds pretty interesting because, as you said, the ambiguity of sexuality or just the flex, like, I'm thinking of how water is also kind of flexible and just goes everywhere. Okay. That kind of thing really makes sense <laughs> as parallels. But although you haven't described yourself as a researcher, but I was thinking about how sensitively you have portrayed these stories and about, you also touch upon this in your introduction about the, I think, negotiation with social positioning of religious while you're conducting this research, and as well as I don't think there are many researchers or many people who are doing research around sexuality, now there are a lot more, there's a little, I think, increase in them, but there's not many books, especially on, I think, Indian sexuality. Mm-hmm. And I was especially considering the taboo nature of the topic, and I was wondering if you have any advice for young, young researchers. I would rather take your advice, you know. No, I think the youngsters are, unlike me, there's a lot of, I mean, people often say it is information that they have, but I think information is also, we cannot just simply say information and dismiss it. There's a lot of knowledge also in that, or at least there's a kernel of the beginnings of something. I really think Mm. the youngsters are very well informed and knowledgeable, more than I think Or maybe there were different kinds of knowledge or different times. But what one can really say is that it's really good to be with people, write about people, to be on the ground. Because on the ground is what really 
is pulsating. It's like life, the complexity. Mm. And it is really an eye-opener in the sense of really making you a finer human being as well rather than just a fine researcher. It expands your understanding. So being, I mean, any research that is based with people on the ground with this reality, mm. I think, is what where one can really bring forth mm. in research. But perhaps the young and the older can combine together and make better <laughs> researches. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. That is the best. <laughs> yeah, and thank you so much for that advice. That is also pretty great advice. I think a lot of us are also a little, I don't think a lot of us work on grassroots level anymore or are a little more, the idea of digital and technology is a lot more, there is a little divide between offline and online now. But yeah. I think for sure, grassroots level work, something that is pretty important and you rightly pointed out it does, that that's a different experience in itself. Mm. And I was also thinking about the decriminalization of Section 377, as you mentioned earlier. And would you have any thoughts about any changes that you've seen in queer lives, especially in rural India? Uh, I would say yes and no both because in some, especially in rural India, even when we began, you know, when we began work after I had done this book on the ground, like on a regular basis, a lot of people hadn't even heard the film Fire or Section 377 wasn't in their lives as so much as this social stigma, silence and shame. So in a sense, in fact, the first time when Section 377 was read down, women were a little worried because it didn't really take women on board. So women were identified trans people, trans masculine people. They were very agitated that now we will be out and where is the protection that we will get? What are the mechanics or the law that will protect us if people will get to know? And socially, in any case, there is little protection. So it wasn't that simple, but I think more than the law, the changing times, the fact that the media, the fact that globalization, mm. capital inroads, marketing, all of that has changed quite a bit. There's a lot more written now than it was earlier. Mm. Even in the regional languages, there's a story now and then of same-sex couple. So, and then when you read of these stories, then of course, section 377 appears. But I think law continues to be in India removed for people on the ground. Mm. So it kind of creates a mental space and people like us who mediate between the state and the community that we work with, create a kind of a consciousness. We are the ones who bring the language on the ground, perhaps yeah. not very good always, but perhaps in another way, it also works positively. Yes and no, I would say. 377 in rural India has not really made an impact on everyday life, except in creating a sense of, well, now it's okay to be who we are. The law says that. Because law and rights continue to remain inaccessible in many, many ways. Just having 377 read down is not enough because there are a whole lot of other rights that are missing, which actually end up creating discrimination and perhaps, again, 
the possibility of being seen as a criminal for example charged with kidnapping theft etc so there are other rights that need to follow yeah i think this leads really well to my next question about what do you think about the current state of the queer rights movement in india and also what are some like changes you hope to see in the future oh many many hope is <laughs> infinite <laughs> there's well um, the trouble is that the state doesn't recognize the entire queer community in the sense for example we have the transgender protection act 2019 but its focus is on gender identity and what the state has managed to do is to kind of separate gender and sexuality yeah and so that kind of creates a problem and it gives you a sense of entitlement and yet at the same time it takes it away from you as soon as you talk of your preference sexual preference so i think it the way we want to go ahead is to actually ensure the implementation of the act itself but also ensure that other rights follow not necessarily through marriage as some people have filed a case in the court one would rather actually talk of partnerships with full rights rather than just marriage alone and getting the whole gambit of the marital discords or inequality yeah. into this relationship as well so what does marriage mean you know would it be more yeah. equal would it give us more rights etc and in gujarat particularly there is a maitri karar a bond of friendship that is prevalent even now even though the law doesn't recognize it it has been useful for couples to produce it as a evidence before the court or the police people mm-hmm. so i think it would be good to envision a relationship not necessarily within marriage but as a mm-hmm. partnership so one is thinking also in looking at relationships in very diverse ways one that provides you choices and continue to struggle for more entitlements for more equality yeah and of course ensure that all the letters of the queer community find equal space within the movement for example the letter l earlier we only had the word lesbian and now it seems to fall in through yeah. you have more conversations around trans people earlier it was trans women now trans masculine people are figuring but lesbians bisexual intersex people still marginalized people within the larger movement yeah absolutely i think marriage in itself has so much bad heterosexual baggage yeah. as you rightly pointed out and i hope again for better future but i'm sure but pretty correct in saying that we do have a lot to figure out before mm-hmm. we move ahead and i think that's all the questions that i had my last question of the conversation is something that i ask every author is to give some recommendation of books for our listeners especially something that would help them understand lesbian rights movement better well you know there's little like you said there's not much on lesbians per se mm. but uh, yeah there's a lot of books on sexuality and if we understand that labeling and naming has never been a part of desire sexual conversations then there's a lot more to read yeah. but recently actually it was very nice 
to hear that this woman called Gitanjali Shri is being looked at for Booker International Booker Prize. And earlier, yeah. she had written a book in Hindi called Tirohit, which really talks of women's same-sex relationship. I have to read it still. I've just learned about it also. And the other recent book is called Monolog. It's been taken out by Sappho. And my favorite story is, of course, Tija Bija. It's a Rajasthani folk story, which again uses water as a medium of transformation. Then, of course, there is Ruth Venita's and Salim Kidbai's book on same-sex love, which is full of stories and which really takes you back to ancient times, recognizing sexuality in a much broader framework than we see it. Then there's Madhvi Menon's book called History of Desire. It's really a good book. And then a collection of essays that Nivedita Menon had put together. It's called Sexuality, I think. There are books around that we can actually find, fiction and non-fiction both. So it's a great time, actually, to be alive. <laughs> There's quite a bit. Now there are films also. Hmm. And now what with podcast? <laughs> and there's of <laughs> course memory of light too. Uh, yes, yes. And cobalt blue by Sachin. It's hmm. supposed to be very good. When I began to come out to myself, there was hmm. so little out there. And hmm. now there's so much more. You and I are actually conversing about such things. It's exciting time. Yeah. Um, and sad that I'm growing old. <laughs> I will not be there anymore. <laughs> yes, absolutely. It is exciting times. And mm-hmm. thank you so much for all the recommendations. I also didn't know about the Gitanji. I will for sure check yeah. that out. <laughs> thank you for the conversation today. And do you have any concluding remarks and anything you'd like to add before I close the recording? Oh, you have asked me most interesting questions, and I'm. <laughs> Thank you so much. <laughs>